Happy New Year, church. Has anyone here made uh, a New Year's resolution? (laughs) Okay, you know, it's common in our culture. We do this. Um, It's a curious reminder, these New Year's resolutions to me, that we are not all that we should be. We're not all that we want to be. Life is not all that it should be. Now, uh, from the looks of the hands or lack thereof, many of you have, have given up giving, making New Year's resolutions. <clears throat> Every year you make them, you eventually fail, and you have to live with the personal disappointment of not reaching that goal. You know, fitness centers thrive on this cycle every year. The gym will be very crowded tomorrow, but it'll thin out by February. (laughs) But even so, many see the new year as an opportunity to start fresh. And I think that this is strong evidence that men and women are created in the image of God. We live in a fallen world, and life is not as it should be. We are not as we should be because of sin. And so we strive. We long for something different. We make resolutions that in the coming year we will be different because we, we want to be better. Why do we do this? Nothing else in all of creation does this. But man is different. Man is not content. We know we were made for something else. We were made in the image of God and nothing else will bring us satisfaction until that image truly reflects the God who created us. And so even those who do not know God long for life to be different. They resolve, they make resolutions, they commit themselves to be different, to live healthier lives, to eat better, to exercise, to work harder at school, to love family and friends better, to serve others better. You see, sin and the fall of man did not remove the image of God in man. It corrupted it, it frustrated it, but it's still there. And even lost people feel the image of God bubbling up inside of them, longing to be released and redeemed and restored. Because deep in every heart, God has put a longing for himself. Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Augustine wrote in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Blaise Pascal said it this way, In the heart of every man there is a God-shaped vacuum that cannot be filled with any other created thing, but only with God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. There is only one thing that will bring the satisfaction that all of us long for. And it's not a better job. It's not a spouse. It's not another degree. It's not even winning the lottery. We need God. We need more of Him. 
Or perhaps the better way to put it is we need to give him more of us. Is my heart Christ's home? Have I surrendered that emptiness to him? Or am I holding him at bay, hoping to fill that emptiness with other things? Is God simply a guest in my life? You're glad to have him in your house, but you want to confine him to those areas that you've prepared for him, like a guest. You don't want him snooping around the house, uh, upstairs in the bedrooms or in the office or in that closet upstairs. Or have you given Jesus the deed to your life? If we could collectively make a New Year's resolution for Lake Avenue Church, what would it be to serve more, to be in community with one another more? There's so many needs in our city, in our nation, in our world. Would it be for peace or for reconciliation? All of those things are good. But there's really only one thing that makes all of those things worthwhile. I want more of God. I want God's presence to be real and powerful in my life and in the life of this community. Amen? As I stand at the beginning of a new year, I'm asking God for one thing. It's what Moses asked God as he faced the challenge of leading the Hebrews to the promised land. He said to God in Exodus 33, verse 18, Now, show me your glory. God's glory, his manifest presence is what changes everything. It always has, it always will. But it's not to be taken for granted. God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. It's part of being God. We affirm it in our statement of faith. But God does not manifest his presence and his glory without conditions. That has always been true. And we are not exceptions to this. If we want to know more of God, experience more of God, if we want God to show us his glory, to manifest his presence in this place, then first, we need to understand his conditions. Secondly, we need to understand and believe in his provision. And third, we need to surrender everything to his lordship and truly follow him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning, for this new year. We want to see your glory. Open our eyes to your word this morning so that we may see what it is that you have demanded, how you have provided for us, and may you draw us to that place of surrender and following you as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Exodus this morning, so uh, if you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus. If you don't, there's one in your pew. We're going to be flipping through it, so I encourage you to have it out and ready. In the beginning of Exodus... We see how the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt by God's amazing power, the plagues, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. It would make great material for a movie, don't you think? (laughs) Well, I encourage you to read the book. It's much better. Uh, 
We read how God gave them the Ten Commandments, the law of God. God said, you are my people. This is how you are to live. And in Exodus 20, we see the entire nation of over two million people gathered around Mount Sinai. And there's this incredible scene of God's glory, his manifest presence among them with the smoke, the thunder, the trembling of the earth, the sound of trumpets. And then they hear God's voice. The people are so overwhelmed by this and by the presence of God that they say to Moses in in Exodus 20 verse 19, Moses, why don't you go up the mountain? You listen to God and then you tell us what he says. Because this direct revelation from God is so overwhelming for us, we can't stand it. So Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days and nights. God gives him the laws, the stone tablets, the instructions for worship. And then six weeks later, at the uh, beginning of chapter 32, you can turn there, the people have grown impatient. 32 verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain six weeks, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. These are the people who have just seen the miracles of God in Egypt in imparting the Red Sea. Just six weeks ago, they saw the glory of God and heard his voice. And now in such a short time, they come up with this plan that completely contradicts everything God has said to them. They take matters into their own hands and they create an idol in the image of a calf like one of the Egyptian gods and they worship it. How often do we do something like this? We don't make golden calves perhaps, but it's amazing how impatient we can be with God and when God's not doing things on our timetable, we take matters into our own hands we turn our backs on God and we wonder why we don't experience his presence the way we used to God tells Moses he better get down there because there's trouble in the camp and Moses has the fun job of breaking up the party after venting a little anger breaking the stone tablets destroying the golden calf the first thing he has to do is confront Aaron. And in Exodus 32, verse 21, he asks this question. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Well, Aaron's response is incredible in the way he attempts to deflect responsibility. You'll notice back in verse 4 that the golden calf was made by Aaron and that he shaped it with a tool from the gold that people gave to him. But if you look at verse 24, you'll notice that Aaron gives Moses a slightly revised version of the story. Well, I told them that whoever has any gold jewelry, they should take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> But don't you hear this kind of thing from people? How did that sin happen? You know, it just happened. I 
don't know. It just happened. Aaron wants to avoid any sense of personal responsibility for what has happened. And it sounds ridiculous, but we've all done the same thing, right? We've changed the story. We've made excuses. We, we try to justify what we've done. We try to make ourselves look better than we really are. But it just sounds ridiculous. I'm sure Moses just looked at Aaron and was just like, whatever, Aaron. Well, the next thing he has to do is confront the people. In verse 26, he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Now, this is an important point in the story. Everyone is given the opportunity to repent. This is an open invitation to everybody. Moses is saying, I invite you today to turn from your idols, to turn from what you have put in the place of God, and to come forward today and commit yourself to living a life devoted to God. Now, who is for the Lord? And from what we see happening in the next few verses, it would appear that out of two million people, all but 3,000 of them said, Moses, that's what we want to do. We are for the Lord. But there were 3,000 people who heard the call of Moses and did not move an inch. The Bible tells us it was the last day those 3,000 people lived. The Ten Commandments were not given as a list of casual suggestions for people who want to discuss morality. They are real laws with real consequences, real penalties. And this is just one story in the Bible that indicates that when people refuse to leave their self-centered lives, ultimately what lies ahead is judgment. By the end of chapter 32, you have 3,000 people dead and the rest of the 2 million people who are sorry. They're sorry for what they have done and they've made a new commitment not to do it again and to be loyal to God. Now here's the fascinating part. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses says to the people, You have committed a great sin. Wait a minute, Moses, these, the people who refused to repent are all dead. These are the people who said they were sorry. Moses, we said that we are sorry. We said that we won't do it again, and we've made a new resolution to stand with the Lord. Moses knows that, but he says it doesn't change the fact that you have committed a great sin. Yes, but... Moses, whatever happened to forgiveness? We're sorry. What more do you want? And this is where we come to this Bible term that I want us to reflect on today. If you want more of God and His glory, you need to understand this concept. It's right there in Exodus 32, verse 30. It's one of the most important words in the whole Bible. So we need to learn it. Moses says, I will go up to the Lord, perhaps... I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement. It's a very important word if you want to understand the message of the Bible. Atonement is simply what it takes to put something that is wrong right. What will it take when God's laws have been broken to restore man's relationship with God, to bring back his glory and manifest presence? 
It will clearly take more than man being sorry. There must be atonement. What we learn here is that almost two million people were sorry. They all promised not to do it again. But Moses said there is still a problem. We will need to make atonement. So Moses begins to think about what will it take. And as he thinks about it, perhaps an idea comes to him. He remembers the Passover a few months earlier and how God was willing to accept the sacrifice of an animal to save the life of people. And he thinks, maybe I could offer myself as an atoning sacrifice. Maybe God would spare the people. So he wakes up the next day and he tells the people there in verse 30, I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for you. And in verse 31, Moses speaks to the Lord. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, in other words, if it's not possible for you to just forgive them, if an atonement really is needed, then why don't you just take my life in their place? Blot me out of the book you have written. The greatest prophet and leader in all the Old Testament is ready to volunteer his life to atone for the sins of the people. But essentially God says, no deal, Moses. This is way beyond what you can do. Remember, Moses had a murder on his own record, and a man with sins of his own cannot deal with the sins of others. So, there is no atonement. And according to chapter 33, the result of this disobedience at the foot of Mount Sinai is that God withdraws his presence from the people. We saw this in the first chapters of the Bible. When sin comes into the world, it means distance between man and God. Sin comes into the camp of the Israelites and God withdraws his presence. God's glory, his manifest presence is conditional. God says, you can go on. Life will go on. But here's the deal. Because of your sin, I will not go with you. Look at Exodus 33, verse 3. The Lord says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. Something they had taken for granted was now gone, and now nothing was more important. Have you ever taken something for granted? Have you ever taken God's presence in your life for granted? And then when it's not there, when you can't find it, there seems to be nothing that will satisfy you. What do you do if there's no atonement? You're left living life with God at a distance. What will it take to bring God back? What will it take to put the wrong right being sorry is not good enough. God has with, removed himself. Making new commitments and resolutions won't do it. God has removed himself. What will it take to bring the presence of God back? Well, remember, the offended party must decide what will make atonement. 
And in verse 5, God says, Now, take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. Sounds like me sometimes with the kids. Go to your room, and I'll decide what to do with you. And now we sort of have this pause in the action. God is going to decide what to do with the Israelites, and he and Moses go off to think about it. Moses had set up a tent outside the camp called the Tent of Meeting. You can read about it in verses 7 to 11. So all the people watch Moses go out to meet with God, the God who just told them, I will not go with you. Moses goes into the tent. God's manifest presence in the pillar of cloud comes and rests at the entrance to the tent. And Moses and God speak to one another as friends speak to one another. But this time you can tell Moses is clearly frustrated. You can almost see Moses pacing back and forth in the tent, venting his frustration. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, Lord, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and have found, you found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now it's almost as if Moses didn't even hear it. He's just, he's still going on. And, and, and he, all he can think about is God said, I will not go with you. And so he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, Moses, look, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Seems my, Moses finally hears God, gives a sigh of relief, but, but he does more than that. He hears God's invitation. God is pleased with Moses. He hears Moses' plea and tells him, I will do the very thing you have asked. So Moses sees the open door and he decides to step through it. Here's my chance, he thinks. I'm going to ask for the moon. Okay, God, if you are pleased with me, now show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And I think God was glad that he asked. In the verses that follow, he tells Moses what to do. To meet him on the mountain with some new stone tablets to replace the ones that he broke. So in Exodus 34, verses 4 to 6, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses. He showed him his glory. What is it that makes the church, us, so distinct in the world today? It's not our programs. It's not our buildings. It's not our preaching. It's not the wonderful music. What is it? 
It is God's manifest presence, His glory displayed among His people. Moses hit the bullseye, Exodus 33:16. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? How will a watching world know that we are any different from the Rotary Club, from any other organization that's vying for our time and attention? It is God's manifest presence among his people. And that's why I'm asking God for one thing this year. I want more of God. I want God's presence to be real and powerful in my life and in the life of this community. But I also know that there are conditions. Jesus says, come, follow me. He tells us to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And in Exodus 34, verse 10, God gives Moses this incredible promise. Please look at it. Exodus 34, verse 10. The Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And then he gives them the conditions. Verse 11. Obey what I command you today. So the Israelites get to work. They do what God has commanded them to do. They build the tabernacle and prepare the priests and the offerings so they could worship God the way he told them. And at the end of Exodus, seven months after they were told that God would not go with them, here's what happened. Turn to the end of Exodus, chapter 39, verse 42. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. Well done, people. So Moses blessed them. But guess what? They still didn't have the presence of God. It took them seven months to complete all this work. And during that time, the presence of God was known only by Moses. And at the end of seven months of being sorry for their sin, of painstaking obedience to all the laws of God, the situation is exactly the same. Until one wonderful thing happens. In chapter 40, the instructions are given for how all of these things were to work together. Now a slightly fuller description of the same day is given to us a few chapters later in Leviticus chapter 9. So just turn a few pages to Leviticus chapter 9. If you look at verse 6, Moses says, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And continuing in verse 7, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and make atonement for the people as the Lord has commanded. So they sacrifice the animal. The blood of the animal is brought into the place where God's presence was represented. And then look at verse 23. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, They blessed the people. 
And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. God's back. After seven months of being apart from God's presence, God's back. Do you think they got the message from God? Seven months of being sorry every day didn't bring God back. Seven months of being obedient to the law and living a different life didn't bring God back. One sacrifice of blood on the altar as an act of faith and the glory of God comes sweeping back into the camp. What's clear to us on this side of the cross is that the thing that put what was wrong right so that God could return to them was not the blood of the animal, but what the blood of the animal pointed to. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he continues in verses 8 to 10, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, talking about Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is what brings man and God together. It's why we celebrate communion. We remember Christ's sacrifice. This whole story in Exodus is given to us in great deal to help shape our minds so that we will understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That on the cross, Jesus did in reality what the sacrifice of animals only symbolized. He atoned for sin. He did what was necessary to put the wrong right so that the manifest presence of God could be restored to the lives of those who believe so they would know and experience God's glory. So is anyone here today who's feeling the absence of God in your life? Life is going on but you know that God is at a distance. But you're beginning to seek after Him. You want more of God. You want a real relationship with God. And you're asking yourself, what will it take to bring God back? You may be saying, I'm sorry for how I've lived and some of the choices I've made. But being sorry has not brought God back. Maybe you've tried to change your life. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. If I start coming to church and reading the Bible, maybe that will bring the blessing of God. But that hasn't done it either. Do you see from this story this morning what it's going to take? Atonement comes not through your tears, not through the sweat of changing your life. Atonement comes through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that was made so the presence of God could come to all who put their trust in His sacrifice. 
The atonement that is needed is one that you cannot offer. But it's one that God has accomplished in Jesus and he offers it to you. And when that atonement touches your life, as you put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, God will come to you. His Holy Spirit will live in you. What is wrong is made right and you will be at peace with God. And when we do this as a community, I'm trusting and believing God for 2015 that he will show us his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow in your presence. We recognize from your word the need for an atonement. Being sorry is not enough. Even our greatest efforts and obedience cannot bring back your presence. Back from the distance that our sin has put between us. Thank you for your love. That in your love, you have pursued us. You've given us the way of atonement through Jesus. You've said in your word, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your provision. Now help us, Lord, to follow you. Take our lives. Let them be consecrated, set apart, holy to you, Lord Jesus. And now, show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.